want you to take your Bibles and go with us to the Gospel of John, chapter 8, please. <clears throat> Not going to be covering everything I did Wednesday night. If you're interested, I hope you are, and maybe you'll be interested enough to listen to what we taught about in the first half of this chapter, a little bit more than the first half of this chapter on Wednesday night. Yeah. And I'm talking about... I am talking about this uh, business of this covenantal discipleship, this discipleship that you and I have that's a covenant with Christ. And I've been talking about statements that the Lord makes about us, about his disciples. And we dealt with the one in Luke 6 and 40. And I don't know about you, but I've become more conscious of the fact that Christ is working in me. Nothing is by as accidental in our life when you have a sovereign God, amen. And I, I, I say that there, there can be, in, in some sense, things that we do call accidents, but we, we yet understand that even if it is an accident, you stub your toe, you didn't mean to, you know, you trip, you fall, you, you wreck the car. We call it an accident because... You didn't mean to do it. You didn't get up that morning planning to go have a wreck. If you did, you were insane, uh, you know. But uh, you, you planned to drive and keep it between the ditches, as the right. saying goes, and, and not have an accident. But you didn't plan on the deer shooting out in front of you. You didn't plan on the brakes failing. You didn't plan on whatever happened, happened. And in so doing, there are little accidents. That's true. But we are also conscious and aware that there's a sovereign hand that either allows or doesn't allow the accident, amen. And so we can, we can rightfully call it an accident. That's okay to call it that. But at the same time, we understand there's a sovereign hand that allows or disallows something to take place. But in everything, he has made us a promise, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. We understand that, amen? And, and, and so we understand today that Christ is, there's a process going on in our life, and I feel that more and more. In Luke 6 and 40, we talked about the disciple is not above his Lord or his master, but he that is perfect shall be as his master. He wants to make you like him. He wants to make you like he is, and he wants to shape you, and that is his priority. The priority of Christ is not your comfort. The priority of Christ is not a convenient life. The priority of Christ for you is not an easy life. The priority of Christ is not for you a life of material wealth. His priority is your character. His priority is to conform you to be like him. That's number one priority. His number one priority is not your finances, all right? His number one priority is not even your health. His number one priority is your inward man, your character. That's what he wants to be like him. All the other is, is peripheral. All the other is in a, an, an, an addition to. It's those things that shall be added unto you if you seek first the kingdom of God. But first priority is the kingdom of God and his righteousness and the other things come as they can come and as he wills that they come. But he will, of surety, take care of us. There's no doubt about it. But his priority is my faith. That my faith, hallelujah, though it be tried with fire, 
might be found. Hallelujah. Oh, it's more precious than gold, but it might be found under praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So there is in your life a process that God is working through every detail to perfect you and make you to be like him. His desire is not to destroy you, but to build you. The second great statement the Lord makes about the disciple is found in John chapter 8, 31 and 32, I believe it is, and we talked about it. Jesus said to those disciples that if you believe on me, he said to them to believe in him, if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This is a powerful declaration that Jesus, the second in this passage, the first, I'll go back to in just a moment, but this is the central uh, declaration that we're talking about this morning. And I've been taking John 8 verse by verse, and I covered the first 32 verses on uh, uh, Wednesday night. And I'm going to pick up here this morning and just share with you some things about the second principle of discipleship. The first one being that he is transforming your life into his image. The second being that Jesus Christ came to reveal truth and that the disciple walks in truth. The second great principle of discipleship is truth. We live and walk in the truth and that truth does something in our life. In this passage, the first thing and, and pri a primary thing the truth will do for you and that's the necessary thing for it to do for you is that it liberates you from sin. The truth will make you free. And we're going to talk about that freedom here this morning. And I'm going to put this together probably today and this afternoon as well, putting it together with 1 John chapter 3. And, and, and there's a lot of things in this chapter that of John 8 that I want to put together for you. And I want you to see how things are flowing. And I cannot cover everything I covered Wednesday. So take your Bible. And we're going to look here at verse 31 and begin there of John 8. Now as he spake certain words, and we dealt with those Wednesday night that he talked about his lifting up. He talked about that he was the I am. He has made this statement a couple of times now and said if they did not believe that he was the I am, they would die in their sins. And we shared with you, we know and the Jews knew that the title or the name I am is a name of deity. Yeah. It is a divine name. It is not something that a man can proclaim. I can say to you, I am Daniel Woods, but I cannot say to you, I am, and leave it open. I can't do that. I can't say that I am self-sufficient. I am self-dependent. I am dependent upon things external, but God is the I am. In him is life. Amen. He doesn't have a source of life. He is life. I'm not life. I need a source. I have to get my life from something else. I'm not light. I need a source. I have to get my light from somewhere. I have to get my liberty from somewhere. I have to get my light. I have to get my life. I have to receive my law. If I become a law to myself, I will self-destruct. I need law and life and light and liberty and love. All of that I must receive because it exists outside of me. But for God, it doesn't exist outside of him. God is love. 
love. God is light. Amen. And God is life. And God is completely free. He has all liberty. And God is our law. He is the source of law and life and liberty. And so we understand those things. And Christ is telling them that I am the I am. And he says, when you've lifted me up and you have crucified me and lifted me up, then you are going to see something there and understand that what I have taught has come from the Father. And we saw that. I didn't go into everything that's a message in and of itself and talk about the cross and the revelation that is there. But we know that on that cross we saw the battle. We saw the darkness. Exactly all we could see was the darkness. We were not allowed to peer into that and watch the battle. But we know when he came out of it he had victory. We know that he had the cross was not his demise. The cross was his victory. The cross was not an end. It was a beginning. The cross was not something that brought Christ to defeat. It was something that brought him to a place of conquering the enemy and overcoming him. Him. He overcame. He cast out the prince of the world. When he said, I'm lifted up, the prince of the world shall be cast out. Oh, glory. When he was lifted up, it was there that he paid the price for our sins. The Son of Man, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up from the earth. And he said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. He didn't say, I'll draw all men unto another God. He didn't say, I'll draw all men to another I'll draw them unto me. In other words, I'm going to be the center. I'm going to be the focus. And the very thing about that cross that they meant to destroy him and defeat him became a source of hope. Hallelujah. It became a source of life. As the blood flowed down that old rugged tree, as the blood flowed down from those nails, Prince, in his hand and his feet and upon his brow, it did not become a testimony of death. It became a fountain of life. It didn't become something that became his passing off to oblivion. It became that from which he would make many sons and daughters and bring them into the kingdom of God. Amen. What a great thing that happened in there at the cross to behold his deity and the lifting up. And in, as he says these words, they're so magnanimous, they're so wonderful, they're so awesome that many people believe on him. But we're going to find out that their belief was a little bit spurious, a little bit shallow, a little bit uh, uh, emotional and not as much from based upon uh, full knowledge. And as they learn a little bit more, they begin to struggle. Sometimes folks come and in the emotion they believe. They believe based on what they see, but when they hear the completion of the message, they struggle. And they struggle with that belief. And I want you to see. Now, he says something. It's a great statement. He says that whenever the, that you, if you will continue in my word, all right, you believe. You believe I am who I am. But now if you believe me, you got to walk on. If you believe me, you can't just hang around here and enjoy the moment. You got to stay in my word. You got to follow my message. You got to you got to listen to all of it. You can't take my my message piecemeal. You can't receive my message in a buffet style. You got to take the logos, the whole word of my message, and the whole uh, uh, in the entirety of my uh, uh, mission and my person. And so he says, if you continue my word, then. 
You're my disciples indeed. You're a true disciple if you stick with me. If you leave me, you were a false disciple. But you're a true disciple. And he said, if you'll stay in my message and true in my word, my logos, then you will know the truth. And that truth will set you free or make you free. That truth will make you a free man and a free woman if you continue in my word. Now, I, I just, this truth, I got to talk about it a little bit, what it is, because that's, a, that's an amazing statement about Jesus Christ. And I'm going to be reading some things maybe here this morning or this afternoon, and we'll, we're going to deal with this issue of truth because it's a critical thing. Uh, we, we live in a society that has tossed moral absolutes out the window. We have not tossed all absolutes out the window because in actuality, they teach evolution as an absolute. Yes, sir. They don't teach it as a theory. They teach it as fact. We understand that science, they believe science to be an absolute uh, uh, field, if you will, an absolute thing. Mathematics deals in absolutes. One plus one is definitely two. Two times two is definitely four. And that is just simply immutable. And you make it something else, you belong in an insane asylum. So we have not. We, we believe when we go to the store, the price that's on the item is what we expect to pay when we get to the cashier and that line. That's an absolute for us. We expect that 8 o'clock means 8 o'clock. We expect that when we're told to arrive at work at 8 o'clock, he didn't mean 8.30, he didn't mean 7.30. He meant 8 o'clock. And we set our watches based on absolutes. Can't get away from that. So they haven't thrown out absolutes altogether. The problem that they have thrown or the issue with absolutes is only in the realm of morality. That's where they want to get rid of it. They're not bothered by absolutes in science, absolutes in mathematics, absolutes in English, and A is an A, a B is a B. They're not bothered with those kind of absolutes. They're bothered when you say, thou shalt not kill. They're bothered when you say, thou shalt not commit adultery. They're bothered when you say, thou shalt shall not steal. They're bothered when you say, thou shall have no other gods before me. They're bothered when you say, thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. Now you have given them something that deals with their pleasure. Now you have touched their heart. Now you have reached to their inward motives. And there they want to be free to do as they want not as they should. They want no restrictions there. But Jesus Christ makes a statement. He assumes moral absolutes. He assumes that truth is absolute. And that truth is a singular entity. He didn't say you shall know truths. He didn't say you shall know religious principles or even religious truth. He said, you'll know truth. He saw truth as a unity. He saw truth as something that's indivisible. He saw truth as something that cannot be sectioned and divided. 
And so you can split hairs over it and, and judge it and make your mind up and receive what you want to receive of it and accept what you want to accept so that Benny can have a particular truth and it can be Benny's truth and Gary can have a truth and it can be Gary's truth and, and Angela can have a truth and it can be Angela's truth. He didn't say you should have a personal truth. You'll know truth, period, as an absolute, as a universal, as something that's eternal, as something that exists out outside of you. And he said, you're not going to get it in yourself. You're going to get it if you stay in my word. You're not going to get it from your philosophers. I'm going to tell you, the rabbis could say, if you stay in my word, in my logos, you will know my philosophy. But Jesus didn't say you will know my truth or you will know my philosophy. He said, you will know truth. He saw it as universal. He saw it as eternal. He saw it as something that, that has existed and that it was a unity. You will know this, and that will have an effect upon your life when that truth comes to you. Now, we're going to come back and deal with that truth a little later, but I want to make those opening statements. And let's watch the trouble now begins to unfold for him again. Verse 33, and they answered him, <clears throat> we be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Hmm. Now they already, remember, this is the very crowd that believed on him. Yeah. The Bible said that as he said these things, many Jews believed on him. Many believed. And then the Bible said he spoke directly to those that believed on him. Yeah. Then said he to those Jews that believed on him. And now all of a sudden they've run up against an obstacle because he said, if you'll get in my philosophy, my logos, he said, you're going to know truth, right. universal absolute truth and he said that truth will make you free <laughs> whoa, whoa 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 wait a minute wait a minute we like your sayings we like you we like your healing power we like your 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 uh acceptableness we like your approachableness we like your your kindness and your compassion but whoa, whoa, whoa what are you talking about being made free we are the seed of Abraham and we uh, uh, were never in bondage to any man now I find that first of all to be an amazing statement coming from the Jew Come on. now he is either simply now you'll notice it's stated in the congregate we are Abraham's seed yeah. So it's stated in a corporal sense and not in an individual sense. Now, maybe they meant it individually and none of them had been any, involved in any personal enslavement to another man. Maybe they meant it that, that they were not a slave to other men, but I don't think so. Jews were a proud people. They are today. They're very, very proud people, and they're proud of their heritage, if you will. They're proud that they can take a little piece of real estate over there in the east, and they can be the center of attention. They're proud that God gave them, through their father Abraham, gave them a land. He didn't do that with any other nation. He gave it to them. It's theirs. They're a unique nation in the earth. You cannot, you cannot avoid the fact that Israel is a unique nation. 
can't get away from that. It's just the way that it is. So I don't think that's what it is, and that's why I find it to be such an amazing statement because they said we've never been in bondage to any man. Really? Well, I'd like to take you back in your history before you were ever a people, but after Abraham. You say you're the seed of Abraham. I'd like to talk about a period of several hundred years that you became in bondage to a people that were known as the Egyptians. After that, I'd like you to talk about times during the period of the judges when you were enslaved by the Canaanites. Oh yes. Were you enslaved by Midianites? Were you enslaved by many people? I'd like to take you to a 70 year period in Babylon where you became the slaves of the Babylonian Empire. I'd like to take your time when Assyria conquered the northern part of Israel and carried your people into captivity and scattered them to the four corners of the known world or at least the world of the Assyrian Empire in that time. You say you're not in bondage. I like to talk about the Grecians uh, who have made you in, uh, in bonds uh, and how that uh, Antiochus Epiphanes entered into your temple and slew a pig upon your altar, erected an idol in your temple and, and, and put you, uh, if you will, you resisted, but your people lost eventually. And even now you're the subjects of Rome and you have no national identity. If you're going to boast, Jewish man, tell it the way it is. And don't stand in your mere spirit of arrogance and say, we've never been in bondage. Because your history is a history of bondage and liberty. Bondage and liberty. Bondage and liberty. Now, so that's an amazing statement in and of itself. But Christ wasn't talking about national bondage, was he? He makes clear the bondage he refers to. Verse 34. Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Now he specifically delineates the bondage about which he's talking. I'm not talking about some national bondage. You didn't get that one right either. But I'm talking about every one of you is in bondage. Now, throughout this, as we talk about sin, I want you to keep this in context, if you will, because even these men that are standing there, that are some of them have no doubt uh, have believed him. A part of that crowd has believed him, and he's talking to them. But let's just understand something about these men. Jesus understands. They are in bondage, every one of them, and they're in bondage to sin. This entire scenario for this day, began in John chapter 8 and verse 1 and it began with a woman who was in bondage. She was brought into the midst of them caught in the act of adultery. She is in a sexual bondage a bondage of lust that's so much so that she has been caught in the act and it's obvious it is probably not her first time and that this is a lifestyle for her it is no doubt probably developed but she has been caught in this act and probably this is my opinion now I think she may have even been a prostitute and that's why they got away with just getting her and not the man because everybody would look down on her being a prostitute but the man might have been high society somewhere who actually had time. I don't have that as a proof. That's just my opinion but the indication from it is that here is a life of sin but then when Jesus said he that's without sin let him cast the first stone. All of them Pharisees are backing out one by one and they are guilty 
guilty in their own consciences. He is in the midst of a people that are conscious of their own sin and that they're in bondage to that sin. That even though they offer sacrifices in the temple, their consciences still haunt them. Even though they offer sacrifices in the temple, they've got prostitutes in their midst. They've got women and men that are bound in adultery. And they themselves are so self-centered that they are bound up in their own selfishness, desiring to kill a man over something that is unworthy of death because he healed somebody on the Sabbath and they're not judging rightly. So I want you to see that they're in the midst. Jesus Christ understands. And when he says whoever commits sin, the word committeth here is whoever does sin. We're going to look at that more. We'll see it in 1 John chapter 3. But this idea of committing is the idea of a habitual lifestyle. It's not the idea of an act, one act. It's not the idea of one deed. It is the idea of a life of habitual sin. That's what a servant is, all right? So the man that, that commits sin habitually, the man that sins day after day, the man that sins, sin upon sin. And uh, that man is a slave to sin. He is doulos, the doulos or the slave of sin. This is not servant in, in the sense, a couple of words for servant. There's diakonos and there's doulos. Doulos is the absolute slave, the one whose will is taken from him under bondage. It's translated servant in the King James. Then there's diakonos, that's translated servant. The Bible talked about in Romans, I think Phoebe, talked about her being a servant of the church but there it's diakonos or deacon where we get our word deacon and it's the idea it can be a waiter in a restaurant we call that person a servant it could be someone who's there for hire and they're the servant of somebody like an employee and, and uh, but those uh, servants are not absolute servants they get a wage they have some liberties they have some freedoms but doulos is in bondage doulos is your will is bound that is you are a slave and you are completely under the mastery of sin. The man who lives in habitual sin is under the mastery of sin and no man can serve two masters. No man can serve two masters. If sin masters you, God does not. You are under the mastery of sin. That's what Christ talks about. Now he, he introduces something here. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Now, this almost seems that Jesus is doing a switcheroo on us here. And he, he goes from talking about servants to sonship. And we, we sometimes struggle maybe in how did he mean that? Why all of a sudden did he talk about the servant abiding not in the house forever. Well, I, I'm going to share with you what I believe he's indicating in this context, especially when we have other scripture to give us some, some understanding of Christ and who he is and who he's communicated himself to be unto them. Then he said, I'm telling you whoever commits sin is the absolute servant, slave of sin, and the servant abideth not 
in the house forever. Well, what house have they really just been talking about? The house that they've been talking about is Abraham's house. They said, we're the seed of Abraham. We're in his house. We're his lineage. We're his people. We're his descendants. He's our father later on. And we'll talk about, we have Abraham as our father. So we can say they're the house of Israel. They're the house of, of, uh, of Abraham, if you will. They're his descendants. Now, and then they're his seed. Now, we know something about Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in Galatians that he is the seed of Abraham. Oh, yes. He is the one that is the seed, the true seed of Abraham. And when God gave a promise to Abraham that he would multiply his seed, that promise was meant to come not so much through Isaac. Isaac would lead to the promise. But Isaac was not the one who would bring the promise. The promise would come through Jesus Christ. He's the true son of Abraham. He's the true seed of Abraham. And Galatians tells us that Paul said the promise was not unto seeds, but unto seed. And that seed being Jesus Christ. So that the multiplication, when God said to Abraham, I'm going to multiply your seed as the sand of the sea, he was not merely talking about having a physical lineage. He was talking about those who, yes, would have, could have a physical tie. There would be those in that group, but more so, they would be the children of Abraham by example. They would be the children of Abraham by those who would, would follow his faith, would follow his vision, would follow his perspective, and that those people, that blessing would come, and that lineage would come through Jesus Christ, so that everyone that comes into the kingdom through Jesus Christ, we can say that Abraham is our father. He's the father of faith. He's the one that we look to as that first example of faith in Scripture, if you will, many ways, that, that he became the father of the Jews. And Paul said, it's not a Jew that is one outwardly, but one that is inwardly. Circumcision is not of the flesh, but of the heart. And we've been grafted in to this tree. We've been grafted into this tree. So I want you to see something, that Jesus is the seed. They're a servant in the house. He's the true son right. in the house. <laughs> and he's free from sin. <laughs> they're servants in the house, and they're servants of sin. And they, and they can't free anybody. The servant doesn't abide forever. I'm going to tell you something. You may be Abraham's seed by a physical lineage, but I want you to know you're the servant of sin. And if you don't get free from your sin, you ain't going to stay in Abraham's house. You're going to be cast out. Do you understand that? You are going to be cast out of the house, and that's going to be the end of you. The ones that are going to get to stay in Abraham's house are the ones whom the sun sets free, are the ones whom the Lord lives liberates from their sin. Oh, glory to God. I'm telling you, the servant doesn't abide forever. If only humanity could see we are all servants and we have been servants of sin. How can we free each other? How can a man bound in sin help another that's bound in sin? How can one prisoner help another prisoner? How can one slave help another slave? Servants can't free servants. There needs to be a son. There needs to be a true seed. There needs to be somebody who is free from sin who can liberate those who are bound in sin. And this is what Jesus has been advocating all along that they're struggling with. And he's going to say it in just a little bit. He's going to say it again. He is free from sin. He is the son. 
And he said, the servant doesn't abide forever. All that's come before me are servants, but I'm the son. And he said, if the son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Now let's see a little bit further. I know you're Abraham's seed. Oh, yes. He's going to talk about, again, this connection to Abraham that he makes. But you seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. Now remember that if you continue in my logos, my word, your disciple indeed. Now he says, you seek to kill me because my logos, my word doesn't have any place in you. My message can't find any place to land. There's nothing in me that you want to really get a hold of except a few blessings. But when you take me, I'm a package deal. You got to take them all. You got to continue in my logos. You got to stay in my message. And so he says, I know you're Abraham's seed. I know you're the physical descendants of Abraham. But you seek to kill me. Notice this. Jesus said, I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which you have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Remember, we're talking about fathers, sons, servants, all that in this same context. Jesus saith unto them, if ye were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God, this did not Abraham. Notice now, here's the point. Jesus is making a connection. He is now going to tell them, I know you're the seed of Abraham. I know you have a physical tie to Abraham. But you got a problem. That's your only tie to Abraham. You're servants of sin. You're men who don't want truth and you want to kill me. And the only reason you want to kill me is because I've told you the truth. That truth pierced your heart. That truth pricked you. That truth revealed who you were. That truth penetrated you. That truth exposed you. That truth showed that you were in bondage. That truth showed you're full of hate. That truth showed that you're a hypocrite. That truth showed that you're in bondage. And that's why you don't like me. That's why you want to kill me. And he said, I'm going to tell you, Abraham didn't do this. Oh, no. Matter of fact, I believe that was Christ who appeared with those two angels one hot day on a sunny day in the afternoon afternoon he showed up with two angels and Abraham didn't kill him he said Sarah prepare three measures of meal I'm going to go get the lamb and kill it and he fixed him a meal he sat down and ate with him he communed with him Abraham when he saw him he never sought to kill him no sir he fed him in the middle of the desert and then he communed with him and interceded with him for Sodom and Gomorrah But you, he said, you do the works of your father. He's letting them know that your tie to Abraham in order to be a true connection has to be a connection of character, not a connection of blood. It has to be a connection that's stronger than blood. It has to be a connection based on faith, not something that's based on the seed of a man but rather that which is based upon the character of a man. And so now he says this. Let's listen to verse 41. You do the deeds of your father. And then said they to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. 
Really? Now they claim, they first claimed Abraham to be their father. Now they claim God is their father. Yeah. We be not born of fornication. Why did they say such a thing then? Well, to be born of fornication is what they considered Jesus to be. They considered Mary to have fornicated and they knew that it was not Joseph's son. They didn't know whose son it was, but they knew that Jesus was not Joseph's son. Now they say that later, but Joseph is going to go ahead and take and claim her. But the fact is that they know Joseph to be a just man and Mary got pregnant before Joseph married her and Joseph was not that kind of man. And so they consider her to be, Jesus, to be born of fornication. And in some sense, that can give him two fathers. You have the father that, that gave birth, uh, that, that would have, in the natural line speaking, would have committed fornication with Mary and then Joseph who raised him. And so two men could, would have been involved in that kind of scenario. But you're born of fornication. You're an illegitimate son. You're outside. We know who you are. Joseph has to adopt you. Joseph has to take you in. And he does. He does adopt Christ and give him his name and take him in. But you have to be adopted. We're not adopted. We're in this thing from the start. God is our father. Hey, God is Abraham's father. That makes God our father. So Abraham is our father, and God is the father of Abraham. So ultimately, God is our father. And Jesus says, wrong again. Listen to what he says. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech even because you cannot hear my word? Notice now. Why do you not understand my speech? My speech is simply my sayings, the expression, the way that I'm expressing myself right now, the things that I, the way that I'm communicating to you right now. You can't grab a hold of it. I'm talking about a connection to Abraham that isn't based on blood, but that's based on your character. I'm talking about not being a slave to nations. I'm talking about being a slave of sin. I'm talking about that I'm the light of the world and I can liberate you. I'm the son that is without sin sin. You are children that are the servants of sin. You have a physical connection to Abraham, but you've got no faith connection to Abraham. You can claim his blood, but you can't claim his character. Oh, yes. But you can't even grasp what I'm talking to you. You can't even grasp the significance of your enslavement in sin. You can't grasp your connection to Abraham. You can't get a hold and understand the, my, my communication because my whole message, my message doesn't have... A, Oh my, you don't know God. Oh, people get upset when we say that. People get upset today when we sometimes look out and say, that man doesn't know God. I'm going to tell you right now. There's at least two in this world that knows whether or not you're saved. You and God. I'm going to say it this way. You can't be saved and not know it. Got that? Now, you can be deceived, but if you're in truth, you know it. All right. Now, you can be deceived. You can think you're in truth and not be in it, but you can't be in it and not know it. Oh, it's that way, all right? That's a sure thing. And Jesus, he mentioned it earlier. We talked about it Wednesday night. When we talked about his self-witness, he bore witness to himself. Yeah. 
But he said, even though I bear witness to myself, it's still true. Because I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. All right? Same thing here. Jesus is saying to them, you don't know God. He said, but I do know God. Because I came from him. Ooh, glory. I'm coming back to him. I know where I've come from. I proceeded from God. I know exactly who God is. And I can tell you, if you knew God, you'd know me. Because Jesus is God. Ooh, hallelujah. The Father and Son may be distinct in persons, but they are not distinct in character. Oh, they may be distinct in the sense of, again, their divine personhood. But they are not distinct in their divine being and character. Jesus and the Father, the Son and the Father are equal and they are co-equal. They are co-eternal and they have been together for all of eternity and what one does, the other does in that regards. There is, if you will, a unity. There is a, a, a oneness in the Godhead so that the, the, the love that is in Christ is the love that's in the Father. The goodness that's in Christ is the goodness that's in the Father and that's why Jesus could say if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Right. Come on, brother. Go ahead. Because he's no different than I am right. in his nature and character. So do not claim to know God and not know me. Because if you knew him, you would surely recognize me because I came from him. That's right. Amen. I have the same spirit. I'm of the same nature. I'm of the same unity. Hey, that's not how Abraham was before all of this. Abraham, you, have you ever thought about that? Abraham is out in the middle of the desert and it's hot day and three strangers all of a sudden appear on the horizon and when they get to him he is up and ready to serve them and as he talks with them he begins to understand one of them is none other than God he sees him he communes with him he intercedes with him he entertains him oh yes I'm telling you this is what he saw Abraham had a vision that saw beyond the present day he looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. The Bible said he never received the promise, but he saw them afar off. He declared that he was a pilgrim and a oh glory. He was a pilgrim and a stranger and that he was headed somewhere. Abraham knew that voice. He had heard God talk to him. When that voice told him to leave Ur of the Chaldees, he left Ur of the Chaldees. When that voice said you're going to have a son, he believed him. When that voice said sacrifice that son, he went to sacrifice that son. When that voice said that your seed will be as and not Ishmael, he believed God. Oh, glory. When that voice said go and, and, and fight, he would go and fight. He recognized God. Why? Because he had that spirit. He was called the friend of God. Woo. Abraham was called the friend of God. He could recognize God because he had God's heart. He could recognize God when he saw him. He recognized God's character because he had God's heart. He thought God's way. He obeyed God. You see, when you're a real Christian, you recognize real Christianity. When you're full of the real Holy Ghost, you recognize the activity of the real Holy Ghost. Oh, glory. And when you're of God the Father, you will recognize the Son. Brother Woods, why are people so deceived? I'll tell you why they're deceived. Because there's no truth in them. Because they don't have Christ. They don't have a heart for that truth. And they don't know Jesus. How can I put that to you so plain? Oh. 
there ought to be in us, and I, I know that our perception and sensitivities have to be developed. I understand that. But the Holy Ghost is the Holy Ghost no matter where he's at. That's right. He didn't put on a face. He didn't wear a mask. He didn't show up in one church and espouse liberal theology and show up in another church and espouse conservative theology. He doesn't show up in Africa and allow them to get by with certain sins and show up over here, if you will, and I'm using our, our vernacular and terminology, I understand that, and show up over in this church and say, you got to live it straight. He didn't do that. The Holy Ghost is the same wherever he is. His nature, his spirit, his communication. Now you may misinterpret him. You may miss his leading. But he only leads in one direction. He only testifies of Christ. And no man speaking by the spirit can call Christ accursed. If you know the Father and you have the true spirit of the Father in you, you will know Christ and you will receive him. Let me try to get it just a little bit simpler. When you talk about, you go into a place, again, I know that our sensitivities, our perception, our discernment must be developed. Hebrews chapter 5 bears that out. Strong meat belongs to them that are full age, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. I know that a newborn Christian is not going to be as discerning as a 20-year-old Christian. I understand that. I know that someone who just came, a new convert, will not be as discerning in the realm of righteousness and truth as a man who's been full of the Holy Ghost and full of that Bible and has spent hour after hour in that Bible, heard the Word of God preached and been living it and come through the fires of the trial. I'm telling you, he's going to be more discerning. I know our perception and discernment has to be developed and there's a process of that I understand that but at the same time my Christianity doesn't hinge on an emotional experience my Christianity is not something that's to be doubtful and dubious I have got to be able to know that I am in Christ Jesus I'm telling you if the truth is absolute and if the truth is eternal and if the truth is unique in that it only has one source and that source is God if there's only one universal truth then I've got to have an assurance when I got it. I can't have it be a guessing game. Let me say it another way. If I've only got one chance, then I need an assurance when that chance is in front of me. If only I've got one opportunity, then when the opportunity arrives, I've got to know of a certain that it's there. And I'm telling you, you don't have to worry. If you've got a heart for truth, then you will automatically recognize God because he is truth and he will make himself known to you. Why is it? Why is it that in Nathaniel the first time he sees Jesus and Jesus says, behold an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. You're the Christ. You believe now just because I told you that? How did you know that? How did you know me? Well, I saw you when you were under the tree. Oh, you're Christ indeed. How did you know that? How did you know that? He said, you, you believe because of this? You'll see greater things than this. You'll see the angels descending and ascending upon the Son of Man. But I can tell you in that moment, Nathaniel left everything to follow him. Now how is it that a man, in the first time he sees him, drops it 
and follows him and never looks back and gives his life for him. He became one of the 12 apostles and he died a martyr for the cause of Christ. What will make a man do that? Whenever others, a Pharisee, saw the same truth, came into contact with the same truth, heard the same message, but did not receive him and turned away from him and left him. Why? Because one man had a heart for truth and one man didn't have a heart for truth. One man got freed from his sin and the other one died in his sins. Oh, glory to God. One man was received into everlasting habitations and another was received into everlasting darkness. Why? Because he had a heart for truth. What makes the difference in us? You have got to have a heart that has once truth and I promise you, you'll recognize it when you see it. Nathaniel didn't have to struggle when he was confronted with it because his heart was searching for truth. He immediately recognized it when he saw it and said, you're the Christ. It shouldn't take you 15 years to apprehend Christ. If it takes you 15 years, the problem is is what's in your heart. You don't want to surrender your idols. You don't want to give up your self-centered ways. Now, I got a lot to say about truth, and I'm going to dig that one out a little later. Let's pick up a few more, and I'll close. Hang with me here. Now, notice what he says. We're going to make this connection. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? Verse 44, you, here it comes. Here's the kicker. You're of your father, the devil. And the lust of your father you will do. Oh, wow. Now, he will say in one side, Jesus says, Abraham's your father. I know Abraham's your father. I know you're Abraham's seed. I know that. But that's only on the physical line. That's only in your ancestral heritage. Other than that, he said he's not your real father because you don't act like him. You don't think like him. And you don't know God like he knew God. Oh, he's going to dig this one out further. Now, he says something about the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. And abode not in the truth. You're going to see that word truth a lot and sin in this passage. And we're going to see contrasted. Christ is not so much contrasted with the devil in this passage. He is contrasted with the Jews. The father will be contrasted with the devil. He is treating the devil here as the father. You're of your father, the devil. Abraham was a father. But more than that, the father of Abraham was God. So we have two ultimate fathers in this passage. The father God and the father of the devil. We have the father of good and the father of evil. We have the father of life and the father of death. We have the father of truth and the father of the lie. That's what we have. And so there's this contrast between them. And then there's the seed, those that are of the Father. They were of their Father, the devil. Jesus was of his Father, God. We're going to see that contrasted. He said, you do the things of your Father. I do the things of my Father. And your Father is not Abraham because you don't act like him. Your Father is the devil. Now, the devil abode not in the truth. This word abide here, or abode, means not the word that's used for remain or stay in the sense of living, it's the idea because the devil at one point, at one point in his creation, when he was created, the devil was created in truth. Right. He knew truth. He lived truth. He abided in truth. 
What he didn't get was established. The word abide here is more frequently, it's the only time it's ever translated abode or abide, um, and is in this passage, but it's most frequently translated stand. In other words, he said the devil didn't get established in truth. The devil didn't establish himself in truth. He knew it. He experienced it. He had it when he was created, but he never established himself in it. He never stood in it. He never got rock rooted on it and says, I'm going to live and this is where I'm going to stay. I'm going to build right here. He decided to build on another foundation that he himself would create. So he left the truth. Why did he leave it? Because there was no truth that was in him. It wasn't in his heart. It left out of his heart. And when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So we have him here being the father. And there are two things in this passage that come connected to the devil. And they become two primary sins that flow out of a, 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 a principle, the, the principal sin. There is the principal sin. And out of that flows these two channels, if you will, that are connected and related. They come out of one, but they're kind of like two streams coming from one. And I, I want to explain that. Two things that are attributed to the devil that he is the father of. He is a father of killing. He's a murderer from the beginning. And he's a father of the lie. Now, the Lord, by so doing, has done something here. Listen to this very carefully. In this passage, I've already told you that Jesus saw truth as corporate, as a united absolute, a universal absolute. He said, you, when you follow me, you'll know truth as a universal absolute. He didn't say here that the devil's a father of lies. He's the father of the lie. All falsehood is united in that it comes from one stream, one source, and it's the devil. Just as God is the source of truth, the devil is the source of falsehood. Just as God is the source of universal truth that is united in his being, God is true, let God be true, and every man a liar. The devil is the father of the lie. He is the father. He is a liar from the beginning. He is a murderer from the beginning. Instead of establishing himself in truth or in the truth, he established himself upon a lie and built his kingdom upon that, and that lie is destructive. It murders. First sin committed outside the garden was murder. The first sin committed was the lie. They believed the lie. And then they ate the tree, of course, obviously. But what was the result of that? Murder. What the devil did was brought murder. God said to Adam and Eve, the day you eat it, you'll die. Yep. And he killed him. That's what sin does. Sin is based on a lie and it kills. Sin is believing the lie and it'll kill you. It'll kill your innocence. It'll kill your purity. Oh, it'll kill your virtue. It'll kill your influence. It'll kill your family. It'll kill your job. It'll kill your health. It'll kill you. It'll kill your mind. It'll kill your perspective. It'll kill your perception. It'll kill your reason. Look around us what sin is doing. It's destroying the nation. It's killing our government. It's killing our children. It's killing our bodies. It's destroying our businesses. It's destroying our institutions. It's 
It's destroying our influence in the nations of the world. It's destroying our history. It's killing everything that there is around. The sin can never produce life. Atheism has nothing to offer. It is a road downward. Sin is destructive. And the father of that destruction is the devil. And that's exactly what's going on here. You are trying to kill me, Jesus said. You are going about to destroy me. Abraham didn't do that. He saw me, he fed me. He saw me, he prayed to me. He saw me, he honored me. He saw me, he gave me glory. But when you see me, you want to kill me and destroy me. And the only reason you want to do it is because I have told you the truth. Now look what he says, verse 45, and because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Here it is, verse 46. Which of you convinceth me of sin? Let me put another word there. Fellas, I've told you, I'm the son. I'll set you free from your sin. You're a slave of sin, and I can set you free from it. But you've got to stay in my message. You've got to stay in my logos. You got to live there and dwell there. You want truth? It's in me. But you don't want truth. I brought it to you. So therefore, you're of the devil because he's the father of the lie. Abraham didn't father the lie. The devil did. You did that. And now you're following him and you're doing his lust. And he says, I want you to understand something here. We've just had a scenario where you brought an adulterous woman in the midst. Now we know she was guilty. And then we saw the men that brought her step out, admitting their own sin, because I said whoever is without sin cast the first stone. The very fact that they stepped out admitted their sin and their guilt. So they were reproved. The woman was reproved because Jesus said, go and sin no more, which means she had sinned. She was guilty. But he, so he has reproved the woman and he has reproved the crowd around him. And he says, which of you has reproved me? Bring your case. Bring your charge. Throw me into the midst. Where's it at? Bring your court. Bring your entourage. Bring your judges. Which of you? are going to reprove me of sin. <laughs> Hallelujah. And if I tell you, and if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? Why do you not want to accept truth? What is it in you that will not allow you to accept the words that I say? What statement have I made that is outlandish? What thing have I done that's a violation of the law? Show me where the law says you can't heal on the Sabbath day. I mean, you circumcise on the Sabbath day, and yet you won't let me heal on the Sabbath day? You go loose your ox and your ass and lead them to get water on the Sabbath day and you won't let me loose this woman or you won't let me loose this man who are greater in the sight of God. Your reasoning is bad. Your law and understanding of it is faulty. Reprove me. Bring your case. Oh, friend, he's made the case. He's the sinless one. He's the son. And if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Glory to God. And the only way you can be free is you've got to know the truth and the only place to find the truth is in Jesus. Amen. Only by him can we be made free. 